0: Well here in Hebrews 10, the argument is, uh, is continuing, uh, but let's just uh, remind ourselves what we said earlier, and what we'll say later on in the series, that it seems to me that Hebrews is a transcript of what is called the word of exhortation at the end of Hebrews 13, that this is a transcript of an exhortation or a sermon or a series of homilies that were given. Two Jewish people who had turned to Jesus uh, at the breaking of bread. There's a lot of reference to the blood of Jesus, to the body of Jesus, all very relevant to a breaking of bread meeting. And so, in that sense, this chapter speaks very relevantly to, to us. In fact, the whole of Hebrews does that this is an inspired exhortation for the breaking of bread. And so he. He keeps on trying to bring out the practical implication for us of the fact that the Lord Jesus died for us 2,000 years ago on a hill outside Jerusalem on a day in April, on a Friday afternoon, that all this somehow directly speaks to us in this century, in this generation, in our set of issues that we've got. And he really uses logic very powerfully. He says, verse 19 that, brethren, we have boldness to enter into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. And he goes on to talk, verse 20, about how this way has been made through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, alluding to how the veil of the temple uh, was torn when Jesus died. And we can therefore, verse 22, let us draw near. And he uses this phrase a number of times, let us, let us, therefore, because of all this, let us do and feel and feel something to the point that this should transform our lives. So let us enter boldly with confidence into the holiest by the blood of jesus i think that's an allusion to to prayer he brings out at the end of hebrews four how if we indeed do have such a high priest we should therefore have boldness or confidence in prayer before the throne of grace and when we looked at that i i mentioned that you got the same word there in first of john where he talks about boldness in the day of judgment As if our attitude in prayer now is to some extent a foretaste of our attitude to the Lord Jesus in the day of judgment. It's not as if everything is suddenly going to go into a different dimension then. It will still be you, it will still be me, who stand before him there. And so our attitude to him now is our attitude to him then. And so we should have a a sense of boldness, he says, as we come into the most holy place, as we ourselves come into the presence of of God. And then he says, 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water maybe an allusion to baptism all the time he's trying to bring out the implication of things that have already happened for us, that we have been baptised that Jesus has already died for us and so he says that we should have our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience now, I don't think he's using conscience in the sense of the, uh, the kind of the guilty streak within us. He's saying, as he says elsewhere, in, here in, and in Hebrews, that we should be able to, to feel very strongly that we have no more conscience about sin in the past in the sense that our sins have been forgiven. In the sense that we should be able to say that if Jesus comes back right at this moment, By his grace, by God's grace, I really will live forever in God's kingdom. And therefore, we should have no conscience of sin. And I throw out to you uh, a a question, a challenge question. Can you, like Jesus, lift your eyes up to heaven and pray with your eyes lifted up? Now, you you may say, no, because we should be like the guy in, in the parable who would not so much as lift up his eyes under heaven. And that is, I suppose, appropriate in, in some senses, in some cases. But I think we don't live like that all the time. There is also this sense that he's talking about here, as we focus upon the fact that Jesus died for me, that really I have been cleansed. Now, this is not the same as arrogance. This is not the same as just uh, conveniently forgetting our sin and our dysfunction and our, our failure. This is a real belief that... Despite and in spite of all those things, our hearts have been sprinkled from an evil conscience. That the the conscience, as he puts elsewhere, has been cleansed in Christ. And as I say, I think he means our consciousness of sin. You know, he's uh, made the point very powerfully that we don't have to keep on making sacrifices for sin as they had to under the old covenant because there has been one final sacrifice for sin and what that means in terms of our feeling in terms of our belief is that actually all sin all our sin has been dealt with that now my sin is no longer a barrier to God's desire to give me eternal life and so he he goes on to say, then, let us hold fast, verse 23, without wavering. Now, wavering is unfortunately part of our fickle uh, human makeup. And yet, I think he's saying that if our belief in what happened on the cross is imprinted upon our minds, not just reflected upon for a few fleeting minutes on the Sunday, or some Sundays, but if this is imprinted on our deepest conscience we will not waver, that tendency to blow hot and cold in spiritual endeavor um, will not be there because we will continually live under this impression of the fact that he died for me. And that is a a conscience, as I say, which uh, an awareness which, which cannot just fade in and out, the wonder of it keeps on coming back, and that is quite rightly why we remember this in the way that we do uh, every week in the breaking of bread. But it's something that is more than that, more than weekly, but is constant. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, exhorting one another as you see the day approaching. So again, believing that he died for me and all my sin has been taken away... The result of that is to exhort one another. And he seems to be paralleling, assembling of ourselves together and exhorting one another. So why then do we go to meeting? We go not really for what we can get out of it, but to share with others what has been done for us. And I think that answers the, the objection that I don't go to meetings because I get nothing out of them. That may be true, but that is not really the point, as I see it, of going to meeting, of the assembling of ourselves together, because it is to exhort one another. It is to share with others our consideration of them. See, all these things are in parallel. Consider one another to provoke to love and good works. Assemble yourselves together. Exhort one another. So, the the purpose of going to meeting is to, having considered one another, to provoke unto love and good works. Now, this involves what it says. Thinking about one another. Considering one another. Weighing each other up and thinking, how can I help that person, that brother, that sister to live the life of love, the life of good works, far more than they are at the moment. And how you do that is by the testimony to the fact that you are rejoicing in the certainty that you are going to live forever, and that you really have been cleansed. So then the, in, the influence of the fact that Jesus died for us should affect every part of our lives. It's rather like back in Leviticus 8.23, the blood of the ram was put on the ear, on the thumb, and on the toe, to, I suppose, uh, point forward to how the blood of Christ's sacrifice transforms and affects every aspect of our lives. Our hearing, that is, our our perception, how how we filter things as they come into us, Uh, our thumb, what we do, our toe, where we walk, where we go. That all these things are influenced by... Our relation to the fact that I have been forgiven. And this idea that we really have been cleansed, and that we have no more conscience, conscience or consciousness, as it were, of, of of our sins standing against us, that this is absolutely profound. <clears throat> You've got it actually in 1 Peter 3.21, where he says that baptism saves us not because, as I read what he's saying there not because it means we are free from the deeds of the flesh not that it means we don't sin anymore putting away the filth of the flesh he said it's not about that but it's because it gives us a, a good conscience in God's eyes it is the answer of a good conscience the good conscience is the conscience that comes from having been cleansed uh, as he talks here in Hebrews quite, uh, quite extensively that we really have been been cleansed and so we are bidden then to come boldly unto the throne of grace in hebrews 4:16 and you've got it again here boldness to enter into the holy, holiest hebrews 10:19 now <clears throat> the allusion is clearly to what the high priest alone could do under the old covenant and this would have been a real challenge for these jewish believers to rise up to to consider themselves like the high priest that he who entered the holiest to make atonement for Israel once a year, that that is now us, that we are in that very status. That because we are in Christ, all that is true of him becomes true of us. But why then did the high priest enter the holiest? Because that's clearly what the allusion is to. Well, he entered the holiest to obtain forgiveness for others, to mediate for them to effectively do the work of Jesus on the cross once a year. And so he's saying that we are now that high priest, that no longer can we just uh, be sort of passive attenders at a religion, whereby we have a priesthood, and we have some guy who, who does all the real big stuff for us, and we're just spectators at a show. We are now that priesthood, as is made clear throughout the New Testament, and we individually are as the high priest. Now, that is really quite something, because the whole purpose, then, of the death of Christ for us is that it motivates us uh, to go forward in his service, and that that service is ultimately the service of others. So then, all the time, Our whole life purpose is really to help others to share that grace that we have been given. This is like the final step of the 12 steps uh, that are used uh, with alcoholics or others struggling with addiction. That the final step, when all has been said and done and the victory apparently gained, is that now I devote myself to helping others who have suffered in that same way. And so many times... That step is not followed, and so people revert. And really, psychologically, that is absolutely true. And the whole purpose, then, of our forgiveness is so that we might go forward into the holiest for others. And so he's writing to people who were turning away. And when he he says there in verse 25 that he laments that some were forsaking the assembly, Of themselves together. I I would just like to make the point that that is, uh, I don't think, necessarily in itself, those words saying you ought to go to meeting. He's talking to people who were leaving uh, the Christian church and going back to Judaism. That was the big problem amongst the Hebrews, the Hebrew believers. And so, this uh, forsaking the assembly of yourselves together. The assembly of yourselves together, I suggest, is actually a noun, not a verb. The assembling of yourselves together refers to the Christian assembly, and he's saying some of you are forsaking that uh, and going back to the temple cult, to to the synagogue systems, uh, etc. And there is always a tendency, I think, to shy away from grace. Can it really be that wonderful? And it's interesting that people preferred to go back to a system of sacrifice and more particularly a system which did not actually give very much assurance of forgiveness of sin and personal salvation. That's far easier to be within that system than to have to face up to the wonderful basic fact that I, by God's grace, have been saved. And that God really does, seriously, intend to give me eternal life. It's so hard, oddly enough, to believe. It's true good news. So then, God has not only made this possible for us, but as uh, we saw earlier when we uh, did studies in uh, Hebrews 7 and 8 and 9, we saw that, in fact, God confirmed the promises that he made to Abraham and he confirmed them through the death of Jesus so that by two things that is the actual promise the covenant and by the oath of confirmation by two things in which it was impossible for God to lie we might have a strong consolation and so that uh, covenant was as it were made for real by the blood of the, the, the sacrificial uh, victim and so it is with us that this blood of the covenant, which in symbol we now drink, brings out to us the degree to which we really have been saved. That really this promise of salvation that God made right at the beginning of biblical history, God as it were made real. Now he need not have done that. There was in that sense no need for the blood of Christ as red liquid because if God says I will give you the land I will give you eternal inheritance uh, well that's it that's what he promised us and that's as simple as that but he so wants us to believe that he so wants us to be there that he tries to as it were persuade us as Paul puts it to the Romans God commends his love to us and so then he Uses uh, the, the writer here, or the speaker, uses every, every way possible, every bit of logic possible, I think, to bring that out to us. That God really wants us to be saved. He says, verse uh, 30 and 31, talking about the future that we might miss. And let's face that, that is a reality. He says, 31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And you may read that as sort of the shaking of a stick in warning. But he's quoting there from the Septuagint, out of 2 Samuel 24:14. this thing about falling into the hands of God. And it's interesting, because it's a kind of uh, a slight twist of the argument, because in 2 Samuel 24, verse 14, David has been given these choices to fall into the hands of God, or fall into the hands of man. And he says, it's better to fall into the hands of God. In other words, thinking that through, David had realized that actually God is kinder than man. If you've got to face judgment, it's better to have it at the hands of God than at the hands of man. And so, yes, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but, and this is where you have to pick up the allusion to 2 Samuel 24:14, but actually God is kinder than man. And all the way through, God wants to say. And really, we should not continually fear whether I will or will not be saved. The whole point of the death of Christ was, as it were, to to stamp once and for all as valid and real the promise that God has given us, that he gave right back at the beginning of biblical history, that I will bless you, and the blessing is interpreted in Acts 3 as the blessing of forgiveness of sin. I will give you eternal life in the land... In the kingdom, in the seed. And we have been baptized into Christ. We are in the seed. And all those promises made to Abraham and his seed are made to us. And so he he goes on to say, 35, Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. And he reminds them how earlier, verse 32, in the former days... When they were first uh, converted, they had so many afflictions, and how they uh, were unafraid to show solidarity. Verse 33 with those who had been put in prison and uh, and abused. And he says, 34, "You had compassion of me in my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance." Now, if you really believe. If you really believe the things that we've spoken of, that really we will be saved, then nothing in this life, no setback, no catastrophe, no persecution, the loss of all things, all that can even be taken joyfully. And this is a real, a real challenge, but... It is so. And I love the way he says in 34, you took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves. In other words, when it comes to generosity, or when it comes to putting on a, a strong face when we've suffered something, he's aware that you can do that on the surface, that you can show that, yeah, okay, I'm okay about it. But he says, in yourselves, right, within yourselves, you knew that you have a reward prepared for you in heaven, that Jesus will return, as he says at the end of Hebrews 11, that that Jesus is going to return and give to you. And so this is the key, I, I think, being so convinced of salvation, that actually whatever happens is absolutely less than nothing, and that there is even a joy felt because of loss. Now that is a totally counter-instinctive feeling, a totally non-human uh, emotion, to have joy because of loss. And uh, he, he talks about that paradox, the joy because of giving away, uh, when he writes to the Philippians and to the Corinthians about their giving to others. He, he says about the Philippians that the abundance of their joy resulted in their generosity, 2 Corinthians eight two. And these uh, Hebrews, who had initially suffered so much, he says in hebrews six twenty that despite that, they still have gave support to the poor believers in, uh, in Palestine, so then an outgoing life of giving with joy and it 's that joyful giving which we know God loves that is only really possible, not by any psychological bind that you put yourself into, uh, but it's possible because we are sure that we have been forgiven and that really we have eternal life in God's kingdom awaiting us. And as I say, the stamp, the, the assurance that that is really the case and not just a nice idea is in the fact that Jesus died for us to confirm those promises. And the cup that we take, we take as a celebration, as a confirmation that all that for me, will come wonderfully real.